0: Sometime in March 2010, 32-year-old Jamie Liety seemed to vanish from her home in Chandler, Arizona without a trace. Jamie was a University of Michigan graduate who was independent, bubbly, and career-driven, and she had contacts all over the country. But because Jamie was a private person who did not have many friends in the area, rarely talked to her parents, and had recently lost her job, it took more than 10 weeks for anyone to notice that she was missing. Police searched the home on the 300 block of North Eucalyptus Street in the Phoenix suburb. They saw no signs of a struggle, no blood, no body, no Jamie. Detectives tried to piece together her last movements and figured out that the last time Jamie was seen was on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, when she was running errands around town. Phoenix is surrounded by desert. It's easy to drop off the radar there, especially for someone with no set daily routine. The only person who saw Jamie on a regular basis was her live-in boyfriend, personal trainer Brian Stewart. But police couldn't find him either. Like Jamie, he seemed to have disappeared. What they did discover when they finally found Brian only raised more questions. Everything that Jamie thought she knew about her soulmate was a lie. His age, his background, his marital status, and even his name. It seemed that for years, Jamie had been sharing her bed with a stranger, This case may make you ask yourself, how well do you really know the person sleeping next to you? I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Red Collar. Jamie Laity was born in 1977. Her parents were immigrants from Thailand, and the family settled in San Gabriel, California. Investigative reporter Camille Kimball, who wrote a chapter on Jamie's case for Catherine Ramsland's book, Masters of True Crime, said that Jamie had a complicated relationship with her family from the time that she was a child. Her parents pushed her and her older sister, Pavaree, nicknamed Pepper, to excel in school, and both girls did. After high school, Jamie went on to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. According to 48 Hours, at the University of Michigan, Jamie blossomed. She made several close girlfriends who nicknamed themselves the 516 Girls after an address that they shared senior year. Their social lives revolved around Wolverines football games, and Jamie, always smiling front and center, was the team's biggest fan. After Jamie graduated in 1999, friends say that her parents wanted her to go to medical school like Pepper, but Jamie was following her own path. She moved to Phoenix where she got a high paying job for a medical supply company and bought her own home. She stayed in touch with her girlfriends. They would email regularly and meet at destination weddings and occasional events. But in Phoenix, Jamie was lonely. To make friends, she joined the local University of Michigan Alumni Club. And that's where in 2006, Jamie met Brian Stewart, a five foot nine blue eyed muscular personal trainer. Brian was 33, and he told Jamie that he had a distinguished military career serving in Iraq and Afghanistan before becoming a personal trainer. He said that his parents had been killed in a car crash, so, like Jamie, he had no one close around him. But they really bonded over the fact that, like Jamie, Brian was a University of Michigan graduate and also a Wolverine superfan. After the couple had been together for about a year, Brian moved into Jamie's house in the upscale suburb of Chandler. Jamie was the breadwinner and paid all the household bills, since Brian made much less than her at his personal training job. But she adored Brian, and friends said that she had no problem with picking up the tab. It seemed that Brian and Jamie were a true case of opposites attracting. Brian was physical. He loved camping and hiking and was a Tea Party member, while Jamie led a more sedentary life and seemed to be much more easygoing. Brian was mysterious, like the way that he never seemed to want to pose for a picture, But through emails, Jamie's friends kept asking her for more details on her new, hunky mystery man. And for the most part, Jamie painted a fairly rosy picture of the early days of their relationship. But by summer 2007, cracks started to appear in Brian's story. Detectives would later learn that at one point, Jamie actually ordered a background check on Brian, but seemed to be reassured when it came back clean. In August of that year, Jamie received an email from a sender who identified herself as Michelle, According to Camille Campbell, Michelle claimed to be the fiancé of an inmate who was housed near Brian. The message read, I am locked up at Durango Jail. The police impounded the car. I am still in the dark about why I was arrested. He ended with a plea. I can't arrange bail, but you can. Please get me out of here. It turned out that Brian had been arrested after a homeowner found him breaking into his Mercedes. Police chased Brian through the affluent neighborhood while a helicopter shined light down on him from above and law enforcement finally caught him out on a baseball field. Brian claimed the whole thing had been a mistake. He had simply taken a wrong turn somewhere. Police seized Jamie's Honda and took Brian into custody. Jamie paid his $3,600 bail, and Brian was free. But he lost his job at Red Mountain Gym, where he'd been training clients. And even though Jamie was the one who had bailed him out and stood by him, he told his boss that he had to leave due to an incident with Jamie that forced the couple to break up. Meanwhile, he told Jamie that he planned to open a gym of his own and registered a company name with the Arizona Secretary of State. He asked Jamie to invest money in the new business venture. Since she didn't have enough, he also hit up some of his personal training clients for loans. Brian didn't do much for the new business besides a five-minute registration process. While presenting himself as an ambitious entrepreneur, Brian was actually blowing off court dates related to the burglary charge. A warrant was issued for his arrest— Once again, Brian was taken into custody. And once again, Brian claimed the whole thing was a huge mix-up. He said he never received anything in the mail telling him he had a court date. Of course, this was no surprise, since he'd given police a fictitious address on Biltmore Drive, rather than the home that he shared with Jamie. This time, Brian's bail was set at $5,000. Jamie paid it. Brian was charged with second-degree burglary, forgery, resisting arrest, and second-degree criminal trespass. He took a plea deal and got two years probation and no jail time. Over the summer, the evidence suggests that Jamie kept bailing her boyfriend out of trouble, literally and figuratively. In October, she paid for flights to Michigan for the couple to attend a Wolverines game in Ann Arbor. Brian and Jamie looked blissfully happy in the photo, decked out in the team's blue and gold colors. In April 2009, Jamie sent an email to her friend Kathy, telling her she and Brian had been fighting and that she had, quote, met someone who gave me serious doubts about Brian and me, End quote. But the couple stayed together, and Jamie kept footing the bill for Brian. Jamie paid for Brian to get expensive dental work, and she put down $700 in plane fare and even a hotel room at the Hilton so that he could attend a personal training convention. A few months later, Jamie's world was rocked when she lost her job during the Great Recession. Now, I relate to Jamie's story because I've been single for a large portion of my life, and I've found myself living in an area with not many friends and no family around and lost my job suddenly. At times, I have asked myself the morbid question, if I disappeared, how long would it take for anyone to know that I was missing? The differences between the couple's approaches to job loss could be seen clearly in their digital correspondences from this time period. Jamie worked as hard as she could to find another job, taking two part-time jobs as a PA and a telemarketer to pay the bills. She contacted everyone in her network and was constantly searching for leads. She also kept donating to charities, giving both money and frequent flyer miles to the University of Michigan students who needed help. And even when she couldn't donate money, she was generous with her time. She made home visits to elderly residents at a hospice. Brian, on the other hand, seemed ready to roll out as soon as the money stopped rolling in. Brian was secretly making arrangements to rent his own place in Scottsdale, He had called Arizona Public Service Company and asked for electricity to be hooked up to an apartment. In October, Jamie wrote to her friend Sheila, quote, it has been really hard since I was laid off. I was the breadwinner and Brian was the trophy wife. Now he doesn't quite understand that we can't always live the same lifestyle without my income, end quote. Jamie was proud and she didn't want anyone to feel sorry for her. Tragically, Hard times made Jamie withdraw even more from the people who loved her. Then, on March 18th, Jamie vanished. Later that day, Brian emailed a mutual friend telling her, quote, Jamie dumped me and she's moving to Colorado, end quote. For months, when friends didn't hear from her, they weren't too alarmed. They tried to respect her privacy. But by late spring, they were becoming more and more concerned. After comparing notes and realizing that no one had heard from Jamie, Some of her friends were starting to get very suspicious of Brian. One of Jamie's friends, Marlene, called a private investigator, L. Burt Biles. He did a background check on Brian and found nothing suspicious. But he did see that he had lived with a man named Rick Wayne Valentini at two different addresses. I've done hundreds of background checks, and I can tell you that when the same name keeps popping up at different addresses, it's definitely something that's worth checking into. It could be nothing, it could be a roommate or a family member, but it could also be a significant other or an indicator of some type of fraud. What was Brian's link to Rick Valentini? Meanwhile, Jamie's friends were joining forces and appealing to the public for any information on what could have happened to their friend. They created a page, Help find Jamie Liety, on Facebook, and asked anyone with any information to contact them and police. On May 28, Jamie's friend Marlene called Brian and pressed him for information. Brian said he had not heard anything from Jamie, so Marlene asked him to call Jamie's father. She also called Jamie's father, who called the police and officially reported Jamie missing. Authorities put out public pleas for information. They described Jamie as five feet, four inches tall, 130 pounds with a medium build, black hair and brown eyes. Jamie had two cars, a silver Honda and a 2007 gold Ford Escape. She'd bought the Ford Escape, an SUV, because Brian loved camping. So they asked anyone who had seen the new model silver Honda or the gold Ford Escape during the St. Patrick's Day weekend to call the Chandler police. Detectives got a search warrant, and they went into Jamie's home on North Eucalyptus Street. They found no trace of Jamie there. But also, they found no signs that she planned a trip. There was no packed suitcase, no clothes missing, her cell phone was gone, but all her medications were there, including her birth control pill packet, with only four pills missing. Jamie's father told reporters that he had no idea what had happened to his daughter. But he did say he noticed jewelry and other valuables he and his wife gave to Jamie appeared to be missing when they went to her house on June 4th. He said, quote, Everything's messy. My daughter would never leave the house like that. All the expensive stuff was gone. End quote. There was something else conspicuously missing, Jamie's second car. Detectives found the silver car in the driveway, but not the gold Honda Escape. Detectives knew they had to follow the lead and find the Honda. So they ran the license plates on the vehicle and got a hit. The Honda had been spotted entering a gated community on Rain Tree Road in Scottsdale. A police officer, Detective Moffat, went to the address and found Brian behind the wheel of the car. Brian told police that the car belonged to his ex-girlfriend. According to charging documents, Brian then asked to go upstairs to use the bathroom in his apartment, but Detective Moffat said no. Seeing there was an outstanding warrant out for Brian, the detective immediately took him to the station for questioning. Later, police would note they gave Brian multiple opportunities to use the bathroom at the station, which he declined. They made it clear they believed that he had planned to hide evidence in that apartment. Police searched Brian's apartment And according to search warrant documents, they found two debit cards, an American Express card, and a health insurance card that belonged to Jamie there. They also found Jamie's wallet and her cell phone. Then they found another small white envelope. And after getting a warrant to open it, they found pieces of cut-up IDs and credit cards inside. Driver's license, Michigan University alumni card, and credit cards. All of them belonged to Jamie. And the DNA on the envelope seal was later matched to Brian. Police also found a handgun, rifle, and dozens of rounds of ammunition in his home. Then they found a Michigan ID card with Brian's photo and name on it, but an envelope with divorce papers inside for a man with another totally different name, Rick Wayne Valentini. Police questioned Brian, who said that he had been dating Jamie for around three years. He insisted he had never cheated on her and would never hurt her. Police were realizing that they knew nothing about the person sitting in front of them. They were finding out that Brian Stewart never existed at all, and the man sitting in front of them had another name, Rick Wayne Valentini. When police asked him what year he attended high school, they realized that the date he gave them did not match the dates on his ID. Then they figured out that sometime around 2001, Rick Valentini disappeared and became Brian Stewart. He drove from Michigan to Arizona and reinvented himself as a new man. So everything that he told Jamie about his life was a lie. In reality, he was 41, eight years older than he told Jamie. His parents had not been killed by a drunk driver. They were alive and well. And he had never graduated from the University of Michigan. In fact, he never graduated from anywhere. He had a fake diploma made by a woman who would later testify she believed the paperwork was supposed to be a gag gift. Detectives also found a state of Michigan seal embosser and a birth certificate in the name of Ricky Wayne Schmidt, several different social security numbers, and a book called The Modern Identity Changer. Detectives tracked down his mother, Debbie Valentini, who told him her son had been born in 1969 and the name Valentini was the last name of his stepfather. She'd never heard of a Brian Stewart, She said there had been problems at home, and that it got so bad, a counselor recommended she keep her son in the garage except at mealtimes so that he could not torment his siblings. In an interview with 48 Hours, Rick, now answering only to Brian, told Aaron Moriarty that he became Brian Stewart and lied about his background because he wanted to leave behind his childhood. He said his mom was just 18 when he was born, and his father wanted nothing to do with the family. His aunt Donna told the news program that she believed he was physically and emotionally abused as a child. Whatever happened, we do know that at age 16, Rick Valentini went into foster care. According to family members, Rick had a pattern of bad behavior, including stealing money from an elderly aunt. The rest of his extended family seemed to want nothing to do with him, but he soon found other women to take him in. It turned out that Rick Valentini had been married three times and had two children before meeting Jamie. He had two daughters, one with each of his first two wives, and both relationships were marked by accusations of violence. He then married for a third time, this time to a successful businesswoman who was the vice president of a bank. And according to court documents, Rick continued to use his former wife's credit card long after they split. Rick also owed lots of back child support, but had reportedly not called or written to his children in years. As for his distinguished military career, turned out he never served overseas at all. He was in the military, but after stabbing two officers in an arm and a leg, he went AWOL. He was dishonorably discharged and ended up spending two years in military prison. Brian told police that the last time he saw Jamie was in the early morning hours of March 18th. He said on March 17th he and Jamie got together, He said he planned to break up with her that night, which is why he had gotten the apartment in Scottsdale. But he said that Jamie surprised him by telling him she had gotten a new job in Denver. Brian said that Jamie wanted him to come with her, but that he had explained to her he had already decided to end the relationship since he didn't plan on marrying her. Brian said that Jamie was upset and admitted they had argued. But he claimed they left things on a positive note. He said that he stayed over, shared a bed platonically, and that the last time he saw her was when he got up early for work and gave her a kiss at 3.15 a.m. When the police called Brian on his lies, he doubled down and insisted that not only had Jamie known about his alternate identity, she encouraged it. He said that he taught Jamie how to create an entirely new persona and believed that she was using the skills that he had taught her to disappear. Jamie, he insisted to anyone who would listen, wanted to be on her own. In June 2010, Rick Valentini was charged with fraud for changing his birth certificate and changing his name illegally. Detectives absolutely believed that he had killed Jamie, but they had a problem. Even though there was a circumstantial case, there was no body. Detectives believed that the man Jamie Laity knew as Brian Stewart whom they had discovered was actually a con man named Rick Wayne Valentini, killed his missing girlfriend. But they struggled with building motive. He had not been married to Jamie, so he wouldn't inherit anything or get a large insurance payout from her death. So at the time she went missing, it seemed like Brian had already taken all that he could from Jamie. But red-collar experts say that at the time they strike out, they've already profited from the fraud. And the fact that he killed her not because he was a criminal mastermind expecting a big windfall, but because she somehow threatened to expose his fraud or just cut off his source of funds would come as no surprise. Detectives started building a case based on the digital evidence. If Jamie was alive, they asked, where was she? Since she disappeared, Jamie had never reappeared in Denver or anywhere else. They found evidence that she was not planning to move to Denver after all. She'd applied for a job there, but been turned down. In fact, She had gotten a job offer from a local company called Carefusion. The company had sent her a laptop, a cell phone, and a credit card. She had used the company credit card to buy office supplies at Staples on March 17th, which was one of the last times she was seen alive. She was due to start work on March 18th, the day she went missing. Friends and family were adamant. Jamie never would have gone MIA with the company credit card. A friend of Jamie's, who helped her get the job in Phoenix, testified that she was excited about the new position, and he said that when he saw her a few days before she disappeared, he noticed bruises on her arms and believed that Jamie had been the victim of domestic violence. Meanwhile, a jailhouse informant said Brian had confessed to him that he killed Jamie. He said Brian asked, quote, Do you think they can charge me if they can't find the body? End quote. Prosecutor Juan Martinez, who rose to fame as the man who convicted Jody Arias, said that he didn't care what Brian wanted to be called, as long as he could convict him. Rick, AKA Brian, continued to maintain his innocence, and he had an elaborate set of excuses for the inconsistencies in his story. Those cut-up cards police found in his apartment? He claimed that Jamie cut the cards up herself. The jailhouse informant just wanted to cut a better deal for himself. And he claims that the forged diploma was a gag gift that he bought for a friend's birthday. Jamie may have had periods of no contact with family or friends, but the same thing was not true of the credit card companies. This was a woman who took care of her responsibilities and paid her bills on time. But credit card records showed that right after Jamie went missing, Rick slash Brian started using her credit cards. Jamie's company credit card was used to buy $160 worth of camping supplies at 2 a.m. on March 18th, before the time that he said he left Jamie's apartment. This is where in a red-collar case, documentation is so important because the detectives in this case did an amazing job of comprehensively showing the pattern of lies. It's hard to argue with a credit card statement. Over the next several weeks, more charges appeared on the cards. There was a cash advance of $503 that was pulled out of an ATM. Brian was seen on camera alone starting on March 18th, using Jamie's credit cards at stores including Costco and Target. He bought a bowie knife, a tent, and a sword. He had some items delivered to Jamie's house, Now, remember, he was telling her friends he had no idea where she was and that they had broken up. In May, Brian was pulled over by police. He told police the car was Jamie's and he was buying it from her for $250 a month. It was becoming increasingly obvious that none of his stories made any sense. Detectives called him Brian Stewart throughout the trial, which began in October 2011. Now, Jamie's friends had always maintained she adored Brian, no matter what his faults were but his acquaintances painted a totally different picture of the couple's relationship and showed even more evidence of his double life. According to court records, one of Brian's former personal training clients said she saw Brian regularly at Gold's gym in the months before Jamie disappeared. And she said that she remembered Brian calling his girlfriend horrible names. He described Jamie as whiny and naggy, a and a sugar mama and he called her Jamie the Gut and would grab his stomach and jiggle it around to mock her weight. The prosecution rested, and Rick Wayne Valentini, known as Brian Stewart, took the stand in his murder trial against his lawyer's advice. He said that he was the only human being who knew what happened and why they happened. He described his relationship with Jamie as 95% great, hitting back at the prosecution's allegations that he had physically and emotionally abused his girlfriend. In fact, he said that they didn't argue. He said he did not need to steal from Jamie, because from their first date, she allowed him to have complete access to her credit cards. Then he dropped another bomb. He said that he had heard from Jamie, that she was actually in Phoenix, and she had been calling and emailing him regularly. The prosecution had presented an alternative theory. They claimed that Jamie had been murdered sometime between 7.34 p.m. and 11.45 p.m. on March 17th. They theorized she had been killed before 7.58 PM, which is when she received an email from Brian. Detectives believe that Brian forwarded her that message, which contained some grocery store coupons, to establish an electronic alibi. Detectives had another piece of evidence. Even though Brian was adamant that he and Jamie stayed in bed all night until he got up at 3.15 AM, they had a photo of him driving the Honda back to his place in Scottsdale much earlier that night. Once again, they caught Brian in a lie. The Maricopa County Superior Court jury didn't buy his story either. They convicted Rick Wayne Valentini of second-degree murder and fraudulent schemes in November 2011. He was sentenced to 22 years in prison on the murder conviction and a consecutive 20 years in prison on the fraud conviction. Once again, he had another new identity, inmate number 268586. For years, Jamie's grieving parents and friends lived in limbo. And Brian continued to insist that he was totally innocent. He told Aaron Moriarty that Jamie had taken daddy's money and was alive and well out there somewhere living the dream. But in 2018, eight years after she disappeared, workers at a landscaping supply company in an area called Sun Lakes were moving mounds of dirt that had not been disturbed for years when they unearthed skeletal remains. They called the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office, and the medical examiner's office later confirmed that the remains were Jamie's. Now, Jamie could finally be put to rest. Penny Peace, a family friend, posted the following on the Help Find Jamie Liety Facebook page. Our hearts are broken, but at least now we can honor Jamie's glorious memory properly. Rest in peace, sweet girl. You are now and always have been full of goodness and light. We will always love you in our hearts. When I think about Jamie's case, I I think about a person who was just full of generosity, especially to her boyfriend. She supported him when he was down and always had his back. After Jamie disappeared, camping supplies and cash weren't the only things that popped up on her credit card statements. Brian actually used Jamie's credit card to register on several dating websites, including eHarmony and Speed Date, where he used the moniker, Thorn in the Dolphin. Once again, he was living a double life. In his profile, he claimed that he wasn't sure he ever wanted kids. He was still presenting himself as a University of Michigan alum. On the websites, he used the picture of himself and Jamie wearing the Wolverines colors, smiling together outside the stadium. So he used a picture of the girlfriend that he killed on the trip that she paid for after paying for his bail as his profile picture to lure in his next victim. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Catherine Townsend, with production assistance from Melissa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, RedcollarPodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <coughs>